if there's one thing that's consistent about the past, is that people have always thought that they could predict the future. How many times in your lifetime have people thought the world was on the brink of the apocalypse? People thought our entire technological infrastructure would crumble on January 1st, the year 2000. Then there was the proposed end of the world in 2012, predicted by the Mayan calendar. Moving away from the apocalypse, I'm sure that when you were a child, you dreamed that we would have had flying cars by now. But you probably, however, didn't imagine that we'd all have a collective consciousness called Google, which you could carry around in your pocket. But some people actually make it their business to seriously predict the future. Today, we're talking to one of those people. Hello, my name is Brian David Johnson. I'm a futurist and an author. I'm also a professor at Arizona State University. Brian's business is the future. He doesn't make wild predictions based on fantasy and lore. He takes real data, technological trends, and even bits of history to predict what the next decade or so will bring. He thinks about where tech is going, how our lives will change, and how he can react to those coming changes. Now he's not looking hundreds of years into the future or predicting how the world will end. Brian works with businesses and enterprises to give them insight to, as to what to expect in the coming 10 to 20 years. And in a way, that's a future that is within our grasp. It means that his predictions might actually affect how we, and businesses, will act today. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they're related to our society, history, art, ethics, philosophy, and the future. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Have you checked out Spark Dialogue podcast yet on Patreon? If you become a patron, you can become more involved in this podcast, hear about advanced content, and ask questions to one of our guests. You can find out more at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. As a futurist, I look 10 years out into the future and model both positive and negative futures with organizations. And then I turn around and look backwards and say, what do they need to do today, tomorrow, five years from now to move towards that positive future and move away from the negative? I work with a wide swath of organizations. In my private practice, I work with tech companies. I work with manufacturing companies. I do a lot of work in uh, the financial industry. Um, I do work with farmers in agriculture. I'm actually the farm futurist. I write for a successful farming magazine, have for many, many years. So do a lot of work in, in agriculture. So there's a kind of a wide swath of, of businesses that I do work with. I also work with trade associations. So these are organizations whose job it is to raise all boats inside of their industry. So we model the future of certain industries, not just certain corporations. And then a fair amount of my work is done with the United States government and the United States military looking out at possible threats in the future and what we need to do to disrupt, mitigate, and recover from them. To predict the future of technology, you need to know about technology and science, of course. But it doesn't stop there. To really be a futurist, you need to know about people, the creators of the future. Ethnography, culture, business, and even history are important to understand. And they're all a part of what Brian looks at. How you become a futurist and how you train to be a futurist is, well, you come to Arizona State University and come to take my classes. <laughs> there's, there's, there's actually many schools that you can go to to actually train to be a futurist. It's, the academic term is called long-term strategic foresight. 
Um, and there's a number of good schools. Certainly there's Arizona State University. There's a really great school at the University of Hawaii at the Manoa School. There's a great school in Texas, in Houston. That's one of the oldest and longest standing. But there's also a wonderful school up in uh, Toronto um, called OCAD, the Ontario uh, College of Art and Design, as well as some schools in uh, London and Australia. But for myself, uh, I've been doing this for about 25 years, and you really couldn't get a degree. You really couldn't study long-term strategic foresight. So I pretty much studied everything. Um, that's kind of what you need to do. So my um, my training is really is as an engineer. I'm a, a systems architect and a designer. Uh, but as a part of that, I had always had this rabid curiosity in understanding systems thinking. So being a systems architect. So I realized that when I was early on designing uh, products in the early 90s, I had to look at the business and the business model behind it. I had to look at, was it going to be touched by regulation? I had to look at the supply chain. So because of that in my um, research and the work that I did, I was able to study um, pretty much everything that would actually go into help modeling that future. So the first step in the future casting process is to look at people, is to look at social science. And I remind everybody that I do this with that the future is about people. Everything we do is about people. It begins with people and it ends with people. It may have a lot of technology and processes and procedures and business in between it, but it's always about people. And so if you really want to model the future, you've got to understand the people and you've got to do it at a social science level. So that's why everything I do starts with um, ethnographers and anthropologists who have studied the people whose future I am going to model. And then for the culture and cultural history, where well, there's kind of two parts of that. I, I work with historians. This is one of the things that people find kind of surprising when they hear you've, you've got a futurist and a historian. It's You seem like we would be a warring factions. We'd be like dogs and cats or the sharks and the jets or something. No, but actually history is incredibly important. Um, what uh, many historians will tell you is history doesn't repeat itself. But history is the language that we use to talk about what's going on. So understanding the cultural history of the people and the areas that you're modeling is incredibly important so that you can give that on-ramp to the future. And then additionally, I look at changes in cultural trends. I'm not a big trend guy, but I do look at shifts in how people think about um, in culture or uh, corporate culture or economics. A great example is I've really been tracking over the last five years is how culturally people have been thinking about artificial intelligence and the effect it will have on our lives. It's been really interesting to watch that shift happen. And it's really important because, again, it's all about people. And so understanding that culture, especially if you're going to be modeling it, is really important. Have you made any predictions that have come true so far? Well, now, Elizabeth, you have to know I don't make predictions. That's what I tell everybody. The, Isaac Asimov has a great quote that predicting the future is a hopeless, thankless task with ridicule to begin with and all too often scorn to end with. Um, that's what I tell my students all the time. We don't make predictions. Ultimately, it's my job to help people model possible and probable futures. And then as an applied futurist, to be able to help bring those about. So I also try to cop to it that I don't really make predictions because I'm, I'm kind of um, making my own future in that way. So I'll work with these large organizations to chart out those, those range of futures, and then I actively work to make them come about. Uh, but with that in mind, uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, I've 
so the work that I do is is uh, on a ten year time frame. So I've kind of gone through this cycle twice. Probably the the one that's kind of the easiest to to see is the smart TVs. Uh, that's really what I did. I was the chief futurist at the Intel Corporation. Um, and this was back when we were bringing the internet to televisions. So the whole notion of, of smart TVs and being able to um, have a television that's connected to the internet, that's what I worked on. Um, I worked on the system on chip, the SOC, that went into um, all of those televisions and, and many of the ones that are still out there. One way that our world has been radically transformed in the past decade is through social media. You can keep in contact with your classmates from high school or communicate with people in your office without even leaving your desk. It's fundamentally changed how we interact as a species. Ever see a group of teenagers having dinner together, all with their heads down, gazing at their phones? Sometimes social media can be good, but can also be bad. It has led to depression, and contrary to what we initially might have expected, loneliness. It's even led to things like identity theft or affecting children's development. I really think social media has fundamentally changed how not only we communicate with people, but even how we understand reality. Um, one of the things that I do in my appointment at Arizona State University is I'm the director of something called a threat casting lab, where we do just that, is, as it sounds. We look 10 years out and look at possible threats and then again figure out how do we then disrupt, mitigate, and recover from those threats. And really, over the last two to three years, we've been doing more and more work in this area. And not only looking at social media, but looking at disinformation and misinformation, looking at fake news, just kind of looking at our online environment. And I think we've really seen a shift start to happen. And it really, you know, for in the United States, it was a big culmination was around the 2016 presidential election. But in many different aspects, I think we're starting to see the power that social media has on shaping our reality. Um, and how we understand the reality that we're in. And in some ways, that's good because we've gotten access to people and gotten access to information that we've never before been able to do. But also we've seen bad actors who have been able to shape our reality in ways that isn't good at all. And so I really think, especially over the next 10 years, we are going to see how we understand that, how we understand now these digital platforms are not only shaping how we communicate with the other, but really shaping our reality. And you can begin to see that already beginning to change with the generation that's just rising, um, rising up, the, the Gen Z or, or Gen Z, as they say in the UK, um, where you begin to see that their relationship with social media is really fundamentally different. Not only are they not really using Facebook, because Facebook is what their parents uses, but understanding that that is not reality. And I'll give you one example that just came out recently. There was a, a young woman who wrote an essay and she was writing about um, how her family had taken pictures of her. And so she had had a life that had been photographed even before she was born. So she was photographed even when she was in her mother's womb and she had no control over that. And very quickly, she began to see that the reality that those pictures, that that online presence put out there was not her reality. That was her parents' reality of her, and it wasn't her at all. And she was actually quite angry. That's why she was writing it. But I think you have a very savvy generation that's coming up that has always had this. And so for them, navigating the waters of what many have been called a post-truth, 
or we're living in a time when the truth doesn't equal the truth anymore, that navigating that is becoming a little bit easier for them. And that's, for me, kind of interesting and exciting because as we look 10 years in the future, especially as we get out to around 2025, 2026, that's out to 2029, that group will make up 75% of the global workforce, which I think is, is actually makes me quite optimistic. So it brings up an interesting point for me, for instance, I'm not that old, but I look back at a photo, actual pictures, actual photographs that my parents took of me, five, ten a year or something like this. But you have these children now who are growing up that have like multiple pictures a day. And I wonder what that does to how they remember their lives. Like I know that, you know, sometimes you look at the pictures you've taken and it's it's such a huge part of your memory. Like you don't actually have to remember things anymore. There you see them in pictures. So do you see that affecting how people are act will actually remember things? Well, I know that there was a study that came out from Columbia University a number of years ago, actually just about the internet in general, not just about pictures, but it showed that human beings are remembering less. It's actually harder for us to remember that the internet and our devices and all of these, um, all this media actually means that we don't have to remember anymore. And so that we're actually, we're offloading our memory to these digital devices. And so, and, and she had kind of done this study and sort of proven that it was true, but she was a very savvy researcher. And she said, well, let's be clear. This is not new. Human beings do this all the time. She said, and let's not be too doom and gloom about it because let's not forget we all used to have oral histories and then we offloaded those oral histories to something called books. And then we had books and then something called the enlightenment happened. So she said, we have to be careful. It's, it's something natural that you, that human beings do, but it also doesn't mean it's going to be a hundred percent bad. At the risk of sounding old, let me tell you what it was like when I was a child. My parents had a set of encyclopedia Britannica when I had to do a report for school, or when I was simply curious about a topic, I would flip through the pages of that encyclopedia, looking at all the bright, glossy photos. When I hit the end of the article, but I still needed to know some more, my parents would drive me to this really incredible place called a library. Now, if you haven't heard about what a library is, let me tell you. It has these things made of paper called books, and each one was about a different topic. If you would have to find a book you needed, you had to search through something called a card catalog. It had a bunch of little tiny drawers filled with index cards that each pointed to a different book. This whole process took an afternoon, or maybe more. Today things are a bit different. When I want to know if you can barbecue Brussels sprouts, I just ask Siri. Knowledge is immediate. The fact that we no longer have to wait for the answer is changing how we think. We might have less time to imagine. And maybe this is making us less creative. The internet fundamentally changes how we think and how we work and how we get things done. And again, this isn't a bad thing. It just means we start coming up with new ideas. We start coming up with different ways of thinking that the generations before us were never able to do. Um, and there's an example um, in, in biology. Um, there's, I, I do a, a fair amount of work in genomics, um, a fair amount of work in synthetic biology, and have for many years now. 
And I was talking to a professor um, at MIT, and we were talking about the, the baggage that previous generations brought in thinking about what this future of synthetic biology and genomics, what it could look like, because many of these scientists remembered splicing genes, actually splicing genes. And now so much of the modeling that's being done was being done on computers, and then you would print out the DNA on a, on a, on a carbon printer. And we got to the point that we realized that so much of the future really lay in the minds of that 19-year-old because they weren't carrying the baggage of all the other work that had been done before. It just means that they thought differently and by the tools allowed them to think differently. Now, with that said, we still need to talk about, okay, what are we optimizing for? What are we trying to get done here? Um, at, to your point where you said, you know, you're not thinking about what you're doing as you're riding your bike or driving to the library to check out a book, you just type it into a search box and it comes up. But I would then argue, and I do with many people that I work with to say, well, what are you optimizing for here? Are you taking that time to think? Are you, are you applying it? What, again, what's the end game? I think that's one of the things that we don't do too often that technology allows us capabilities, but we don't ask why. What are we doing with them? And ultimately, that's the question that I ask people is, what are you optimizing for? Are you optimizing for speed? Are you optimizing for depth of understanding? Are you optimizing for humor? There's all these different things. And I think oftentimes we forget that technology isn't in control, that we are in control. Many times we give up that control because we just let the technology do what it wants to do. And the underlying um, intentions and business models behind it. But we have to remember that we get to decide. The technology doesn't get to decide. So we have some patrons for the podcast. And every once in a while, I give them an opportunity to ask questions to the people who are going to come on. And so one of the patrons actually had a really good question in regards to how the internet actually works. So he mentioned that first, the internet was a series of links, so one website linked to another. And then pretty soon you had spiders and crawlers coming along to help search engines. And now we're seeing cloud computing. Um, and I'm sure there are other steps in there as well. But as far as the internet growth like that, what do you see as the next step for the internet? I love this. I love this question because um, I remember a time when the internet lived under my desk. <laughs> I actually hosted a website on a little on a computer under my desk. So the, technically, the internet actually lived on my under my desk because when people came to my website, they would come to the little thing under my little server under my desk. Um, yeah, where I see things going in the next five to ten years is certainly with the um, uh, spinning up of five G. So 5G connectivity, um, where now most of our networks, we've got internet networks and we also have our mobile cellular networks that are 4G. 5G isn't just another number up, right? It's not just a faster network. Fundamentally, 5G is a different type of connectivity. And that's really what the internet is kind of allowing us to do is because right now we have, you know, sort of large um, server farms and then we have kind of regional server farms, and then we've got maybe a little bit of edge computing, and then it kind of gets to your home. But that's because it has to make the leaps. And what people try to do, like Netflix, they try to get that movie a little bit closer to you on maybe a server farm that's a little bit closer to you, because again, speed of light still matters. You can't actually break the speed of light. And so distance actually does matter. And so you want to get it as close as they can to you so that you can kind of get it. And that's because part of that is just the speed of the networks. 
What 5G is going to allow it to do is it's really not this kind of move from A to B, that it's going to be this multimodal, multi-nodal um, area where it is the, the system itself is kind of always passing back and forth. And one of the things that allows for that is the, the switches, if you will, the, the connection points on 5G, they're smart. Whereas right now, they're dumb. They just kind of pass the signal through. What 5G allows people to do is allows people to change, to ramp up, to ramp down, to be much smarter. So it's just giving much more articulation to what the network looks like. And 5G really is going to afford us everything, all these different technologies that you've kind of heard about, but you don't really see in your daily life. And this is, as a futurist looking 10 years out, everything that I'm working on is kind of enabled by this next generation internet or by 5G. And it's things like, the Internet of Things and the Industrial Internet of Things, smart cities or smart regions, uh, autonomy in land, sea, and air is really going to depend upon that. Uh, more and more robots, more and more robots, not just on the factory floor and on the warehouse floor, but robots coming into our office buildings and robots coming into our home. And of course, all of this data and all of this will be regulated and and uh, worked on by artificial intelligence. And all of that is kind of this network 5G helps to power all of that. What about size of computer? We, we see computers getting smaller and smaller. And so how do you think small computers will revolutionize things? Well, coming from the Intel Corporation, I've spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about this uh, because I, I'm in the house. I worked in the house that Moore's Law built, right? The idea that you would have it getting smaller and smaller and faster and faster. We've really reached a point where the size of the computer doesn't matter anymore. I mean, that's one of the things that we've seen. I mean, now you have um, IBM and the Intel Corporation getting down to 10 nanometers. The size of a chip is 10 nanometers. That's like 12 atoms across or something very close. That's crazy. Um, and so I think we've reached a point where the size of the computer really doesn't matter. It's what you want the computer to do and how you want the computer to interact with you. That's one of the things with the Internet of Things is oftentimes the the processing power of your thermostat or the processing power of your smart baby monitor is far too big for what it's doing, meaning it's overpowered. Um, it's got too much smarts in it because it only needs to do this one tiny little thing, but getting the, the computational power is pretty cheap. Um, so really, I, as we move into the future, I think we'll start to see more about form factor and what you want it to do and less and less about what size does it need to be because pretty much size doesn't matter anymore. One of the biggest fears that many have about the future is the rise of artificial intelligence. Will AI one day become smarter than people? In the movies, we see dark futures where AI has reached singularity, the point where their intelligence exceeds ours. Ever see Ex Machina? That made my skin tingle in slowly revealed dread. Or 2001 A Space Odyssey, where we gaze into the compassionless red eye of the computer HAL. But is the singularity something that will actually happen, or is it just a fun plot tool of science fiction? What people are talking about is the technological singularity. Well, the person who came up with that in the early 90s was Werner Vinge, uh, a mathematician and, and science fiction author who's a friend of mine. Um, and again, what, what, what Vinge would tell you is that he's actually come up with multiple types of, of singularities. Um, what I would tell you in the shorthand is I do 10 years out, and right now, I don't see it happening in the next 10 years. Um, oftentimes for me, because I'm an applied futurist, in the nature of the singularity, and as, as Werner Vinge said, it is, it is the thing past which you cannot see. 
So it kind of goes to the point where it's a bit of a punt, if you will, to use a, a, a football term, right? It's a, it's a bit of a punt because you say all of a sudden machines, the collective intelligence of machines becomes greater than the collective intelligence of humanity, and then nothing will ever be the same ever again. Ellipsis. Okay. Uh, okay. But for me as an applied futurist, I'm like, well, what do we do with that? Right. It's, it's a bit of a, um, uh, more of a philosophical conversation than a technical conversation. Um, and I'm not a philosopher. <laughs> I'm not trained in philosophy. I'm much more of an applied futurist and an applied engineer. Um, so in that way, I actually don't spend much time, um, thinking about, um, the, uh, the singularity. I think there's a lot of people who've done some really interesting philosophical writing on it, but from a technical standpoint, it's one of those things where it's like that point at which you get to where you cannot think about the point. It's like, uh, okay, well, I gotta go, I gotta go build stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, another thing with artificial intelligence, we had someone on the podcast before who talked about an AI that she was working on that actually composes music. It's kind of a creative application for AI. I thought this was interesting um, because as the power of artificial intelligence or just computing in general grows, will it take over more of the creative power or will it give us more of the ability to be creative, if you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. I think it's how you define creativity. You know, So first is, is it about humans? Um, so you know, people still buy paintings that were painted by hand. Um, people still also buy prints that have been reproduced from a painting or people buy prints from uh, something that's never actually been touched by a human hand, but been made on computers. Um, and so part of it, I think, comes down to what we value um, and again, what we're optimizing for um, that I, I believe it will make us more creative. Um, I also believe, by the way, that engineering is also creative, that all these things are creative. The act of creation is creative. And so I think artificial intelligence will enable us to do things that uh, we've never been able to do before. But I also think it, it's going to hold a very harsh mirror up to us as we think about what does it mean to be human? And what do we value as humans? What do we value in our culture? What do we value? Um, because again, what you value and how you have a culture around it is you say, well, this is the thing that we find valuable and we reward it whether that be with money, whether that be with praise, whether that be with support, however you want to term it. And, and that's sort of how we kind of create culture. And we're in a, just in the beginning of a time where we're just starting to figure out, number one, what artificial intelligence will allow us to do. And also, have we reached some of the limits? Have we reached some of the limits of machine learning? Have we reached some of the limits of that? And what comes after the amazing leaps that we've made in machine learning and increasing computational power, do we move to a different type of artificial intelligence? So there's a lot of things that are coming, but it's one of the things that we, we're really just starting to come to grips with. I think a, a good correlation is when it comes to the internet and mobile technologies. Um, I, I have been around for a while. I do remember a time before the internet. Um, and oftentimes as a futurist, I would be working with people to think about, okay, so what do you value as a family? What, what, what matters? Um, you know, I had a gentleman many years ago, I was in San Francisco, um, giving a talk. I, I spent a lot of time on stage talking to people and I was talking about the future. Um, and again, this was probably back in, uh, 2008, 2009. It was just as the iPhone had come out in like 2007. And I had a, we always have a Q and a session at the end. And this gentleman stood up and so held up his phone and said, this technology is stealing my daughters from me. 
and he was very upset. And by the way, by technology, he meant me, that I had built this thing and he was losing his daughters because of it. And he got really, really upset. So upset that like the security people started kind of getting in front of me. It was about 500 people. So, and I was fine. I was like, no, no, no. I said, I said, you're right. I said, but let me ask you this question. I said, do you have to understand that you're in control? And we're at a time, and back then, mobile phones were still quite new. I said, we haven't figured out what is socially acceptable. We haven't figured out what does it mean? And he was not buying it. He just kind of looked at me. And I said, let me give you an example. I said, in your family, when you're having dinner, do you have the television on or do you have the television off? He said, oh, we have the television off. I said, great. That's a decision you make as a father and that you make as a family. The TV doesn't get to decide. You get to decide. And we haven't really made that decision. Now, flash forward to today, we do actually. We we do have things that are acceptable and not acceptable. And also culturally, it changes from country to country. Right? What is acceptable to do in China on your mobile phone in a boardroom is very different than what's acceptable in, say, Japan, or very different than what's, say, in London or in the United States. We, we've developed these sort of cultural norms around it. And we, the technology really hasn't gotten to the point with artificial intelligence where we've had to come to grips with that. But it's something we're going to have to come to grips with. Brian also works with the military. The quickly moving technological landscape means that threats and warfare are also radically different than what we have seen even a decade ago. Attacks aren't necessarily against people themselves anymore, but sometimes they're against technology and our digital infrastructure. When things are changing so quickly, um, how can you predict where threats like this will be within the next 10 or 20 years? Well, Elizabeth, you call in a futurist. <laughs> so that's the work that we do in my threat casting lab at Arizona State University. Um, and uh, it's the work that I'm doing right now. And it's not classified. Um, if you go to the lab's website, we publish reports. Um, and we did a report back in 2016 on exactly what you're talking about. It's called the widening attack plane, where we looked at over the next 10 years, you have these constellation of technologies, all the things that we've talked about from artificial intelligence to smart cities, the Internet of Things, um, the ubiquitousness of compute everywhere, autonomy and land, sea and air, robots. So all of these different interconnected, right, all running on 5G, all these technologies mean that the attack surface for a criminal or a bad actor is only getting broader and broader and broader. And so you'll not only just have, you know, cyber attacks or digital attacks but you'll have cyber social attacks. So being able to target individuals, and we're starting to see that. You may have cyber physical attacks. So starting in the digital domain and then moving into the physical domain. And then even as we move a little bit further saying, well, we might even have cyber kinetic attacks. So something that could begin in the digital domain, but then ultimately move into actual shooting war, actual warfare. And you're seeing some of that when it comes to uh, some extremists and some work there. So you're starting to see that kind of widening attack plane. So what we did as a part of the threat casting work was to map that, to say, okay, what does this attack plane look like? And then what do we need to do about it? Again, that's my job is to envision these futures to empower action. And as I mentioned, your listeners can, can download the report and all the other reports. And what we started doing is coming up with some very pragmatic steps. And the biggest takeaway that it was, because we were doing this for the army, was that all of the majority of work that needed to be done couldn't be done by the army. It's not within their jurisdiction. It's not ethically, they're not allowed to do it, that everybody had a role to play, not only the government and the military, but certainly private industry had a role to play. Um, local government had a role to play. 
uh, nonprofits and foundations had a role to play. Academia had a role to play, and even even individual citizens. That as we as we look at this future that's coming, um, that we're really just starting to see that it is going to be a whole of society or a whole of country kind of approach to it. Um, and again, I'm quite uh, I'm quite optimistic about it. I actually think there's many many things that we can start doing and start getting literate about and kind of understanding in a way, and then start taking action. We all have a role to play. So what can we do to protect ourselves on the growing digital landscape? The first is in what most professionals will tell you is to start thinking about the digital world as if it is the world, right? There is no physical world and digital world. It's the same thing. And start developing the habits that you use in the physical world in the digital world, meaning you don't walk into a room full of strangers that you don't know and yell out your social security number. You don't do that. You don't go to some people who are kind of shifty and you're not exactly sure and give them your credit card number. There's, there's, if, if somebody comes to you and says the, the locks on your house re- need to be upgraded because they're going to break, you upgrade the locks on your house because we know that you know, keeping your house locked up is an important thing. But we don't do these things. And for many years, we didn't do these things in the digital domain. We would freely share information. We would freely share um, our personal information. We wouldn't install the updates. <laughs> There's a reason why people want you to install the updates. There's a, a lot of just really, really basic uh, practices that most of us do in our um, in our physical life, especially you know parents and especially uh, people who uh, run businesses. Like we understand what it means to be the adult in the room. And for some reason, when we go online, oftentimes we're not acting like the adult in the room. So that's really the the easiest and best step to take is to start thinking about the digital world as a part of the world and really start approaching it, you know, and and, and really when you get that weird email, just don't click on that link. Don't click on it. <laughs> like it's like when you get a weird piece of mail, you don't know if you want it to open it. It's like it's that same thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And when people look at the future, I, I, I know this is a big thing that you mentioned a lot. So a lot of people look at the future with a lot of fear, but you don't. And so why do you think people have such a fear of the future? And how do you think that we can make the future be a good one? Well, human beings are drawn to fear. You know, what some people will tell you is, you know, we've got uh, a fear response in our brain that we've had for a long time. It's like when you walking through the woods and you hear a snapping of a twig and you jump, right? That's something that's just in us. Um, I'm not a biologist. And so I can't talk about what that is, but you have that in there. So fear is a, is a physical and mental and emotional state that we get into. Um, and it's just a part of being human. Now we go to fear because oftentimes people move towards fear because it's a lot easier. We're drawn to fear. But I do a lot of work with neuroscientists kind of talking about fear. And what they will tell you is that fear makes you stupid. That your brain, when it is fearful, can make three types of decisions. Flight, fight, or freeze. That's it. And we've all seen people make really dumb decisions from a fearful place. We've seen people make business decisions from a a fight or flight standpoint. We've seen people make uh, purchase decisions, all these different things. And so the the point is, is to get yourself out of that fearful mindset um, and then realize that fear has that effect on us. And then if somebody is trying to scare you, ask why. Because if they're trying to scare you and make you fearful, they're trying to make you stupid. 
And so when you read something or you, somebody tells you something or, and they're coming at you around a future that is so big and so terrible and, you know, everything is going to end, they're disempowering you. They're taking away your power by saying, this is a horrible, terrible future and there's nothing you can do about it. I like to tell people I'm a, I'm a science fiction author. And so I, I do a lot of writing and, and, you know, certainly in science fiction, you have to have dark futures because, you know, bright, optimistic futures are kind of boring. They're good in life, but really kind of boring in fiction. And so people, you know, sort of say, oh, you're an optimist. Are you against these dystopias? Are you against these dark futures? And I tell people, no, not at all. They're, they make good fiction, but also we have to be responsible for our feel fearful futures for those dark futures. Like you can't walk into a room and go, we're all going to die and then walk out. That's like, that's a jerk move. That's just, you're never going to be invited back by the way. What you need to do is walk into a room and say, we're all going to die. And here's what we can do about it. And so I think we have to be responsible for those dark futures. So I would off, I would ask people to say, oh, how are, who, are you being responsible? And if somebody is scary and you ask to say, why? What are they getting out of it? Oftentimes they're trying to sell you something or they're trying to persuade you. Um, if they're not giving you, okay, and here's what we should do about it. Um, so for me, being an optimist, and being an optimist is a decision. You can be an optimist or, or a pessimist. It doesn't matter one way or the other. I'm an optimist because I think people build the future. And so what I push people is to say, you have to be an active participant in your future. You can't be passive. You can't sit back and let the future happen to you. You have to be an active participant and go and build that future and ask yourself, what's the future you want and what's the future you want to avoid and really take the time to really have that conversation with yourself, with your friends, with your family, with your colleagues, with your community members, with your church members, with your people in your state. I mean, it's really, really powerful because the way that you change the future is you change the story that people tell themselves about the future that they're going to live in. And that's that act, that act of thinking about the future and both the positive and the negative future that you want and say, no, this is the future that I want. Then you can start to actively take steps to move towards that positive future. And you can share it with other people because human beings are story believing machines. We, we transact in stories and stories about the future is what drives us because nothing great was ever built by humans that wasn't imagined first. And so that's what I push people to do and why I'm so optimistic and how we can move towards the positive is not to shy away from the negative, be responsible for the negative and figure out what we can do about it. Again, as a director of a threat casting lab, that's my job. But on the other side of it, in our daily lives, is to really think about it and think about what is that positive future? Where do we want to go? Start sharing it with people and then methodically start taking action to move towards the positive. We've seen a lot of portrayals of the future in fiction. Dystopian worlds like the Terminator or the Matrix. Worlds where we travel the galaxy like Star Trek or Interstellar. Or movies with a unique concepts of the future like Minority Report. And I asked Brian what movie he thought might be the closest to what we'd actually expect the future to look like. Well, I have one going back to your question about the singularity and about artificial intelligence. You know, oftentimes when people write about the singularity or artificial intelligence, it's always very negative, right? It's HAL 9000 or it's <clears throat> the Terminator or it's all these different very negative futures. And that's why people also have this sort of fear about it. And so one of my favorite depictions of artificial intelligence is the movie Her, uh, the Spike Jones movie Her, where they call it an operating system, but it's really artificial intelligence, where this uh, gentleman 
who is emotionally damaged in the real world ends up having a relationship with some an artificial intelligence. And that artificial intelligence helped to heal him. I won't reveal the whole movie. It gives a very different vision of what the technological singularity could look like instead of the machines rising up and killing all human beings. It's not that at all. It gives a very different view of what that might look like. And I find that interesting, but I won't, that's a spoiler alert. I won't talk about that. But then what I really like about it is you have this story that starts with an individual who is emotionally damaged, who's had some hard things happen to him in life. And through his action and interaction with this artificial intelligence, with this technology, by the end of it, he has been healed. And to me, that is a very lovely story of how we should think about technology is how can we use it to make people's lives better? It's actually really funny that you mentioned that movie because that would actually be my answer to that question as well. <laughs> um, maybe for a slightly different reason. It, uh, in that movie, it's interesting to see like the technology sort of blend into the background. Like it's not, it's not flashy. It's not you know super you know metallic or you know you look at his phone and it's I think it's has like a wooden hue to it or something like that. And it's just so natural. Like technology has gone to a place where it doesn't have to be flashy anymore it, it's just it's there and now we can just make it you know part of our lives and more beautiful i guess if <laughs> i know i love it it's making technology more human the world is changing perhaps faster than it ever has before things that we might not have even dreamed up 30 or even 10 years ago are now part of our everyday existence it's easy to take a look at the future in this fast-moving world with a sense of dread but if there's anything I've learned after talking to Brian, is that the future is ours. It is what we make of it, and we have control over what kind of world it will be. So let's make it a good one. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find more at the web at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for joining us, and find out how you can become more involved in the production of this podcast at patreon.com sparkdialogue. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Some of the background music you hear is produced by me. Others are clips from Where Was I by Lee Rosevere, Improvisation on Friday by Alex Barroza, Nonstop by Kevin McLeod, Mysterium by Dachshund, Floating Cities by Kevin McLeod, and Behind Us by B.O. Crew. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.